Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University and welcome to class. Hey everyone, this is Sean, back with another great interview. Sorry we missed our bi-weekly the last week, you know how things go. Uh, but back with a great one today, we have the current Nashville Predators assistant coach on. It's uh, just another one of those life connections that you wouldn't know existed unless you kind of really got to know the people around you. I was fortunate enough this season to have a couple of fantastic roommates uh, the one I'm talking about right now is Colton Hefley. Garrett was down in Knoxville with us for a couple of weeks, and uh, he can agree that Hef is just a salt-of-the-earth guy. Uh, you know, a great hockey player, but, you know, an even better friend. And I'm really glad I got to meet him last year. And his fiance, uh, Melissa, who helped us set this up, so a big shout-out to her as well. Uh, her father is the assistant coach for the Nashville Predators. So I was fortunate enough to meet them in person. and kind of talked to him a little bit about his playing career. He played in the major junior, uh, then he played a 19 year professional career. And now he has made it up through the ranks in coaching and is coaching the Nashville Predators. So a uh, really exciting interview coming up with there. But just before that, uh, I want to talk about the NBA finals a little bit, not the finals themselves. I know we're a little late, but uh, you know, one of the superstars of the, the league, and uh, I think he won the MVP actually, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, I definitely butchered that, sorry, but he had an amazing quote about mindset. And it's really cool to see someone who is at the absolute peak of their profession. He just won the championship. I think he's one of the youngest superstars to do it. Uh, you know, he's won a couple of MVPs and, you know, they asked him about it. And, you know, basketball kind of has a bad reputation of those people being pretty cocky and his response to, you know, his mindset was amazing. And here's the quote, the mindset to have, when you focus on the past, that's your ego. I did this in the past. I won that in the past. When I focus on the future, that's my pride. I'm going to dominate. That's your pride talking. I try to focus on the moment in the present. That's humility. That's being humble. That's a skill I'm trying to master. And it's been working so far, so I'm not going to stop. And I think that that's something that resonates with a lot of the people that we've had on this podcast and they've said it in different ways, but I really liked how we summarized that. Uh, you know, two of the biggest things that we spend too much energy on is the past and the future. And those are two things that you can't control. You know, one of Garrett's favorite sayings is control the controllables and all you have is the present. And he focuses on being in the moment. And like he said, it's been working out for him. So I just wanted to share that quote if it's something that you guys hadn't seen because, uh, you know, it really resonated with me. Garrett, I know I took up a lot of time there at the intro before bringing you in, but what do you think about that quote? And then uh, moving on, what did you think about the interview today? That's a great quote. And uh, as Sean knows, I'm starting to read uh, a few more books and I actually got a new book recently. One second. It's called No Excuses. Uh, I got three new books actually, but I'm reading one called No Excuses and it's really good. Um, similar to what, you know, Sean said and not an exact quote like that, but it talks about just kind of being present in the moment. And there's a bunch of other tips and tricks that it gives um, to kind of like living this fulfilled life or like finding things that are fulfilling to you. Um, so pretty interesting, but I really like that quote. And I think a lot of times when we think in the past or in the future, it creates like this anxiety or depression or, you know, false expectations of what should be. And I know we've talked about this in, in past episodes, but I think those are things we need to try to eliminate from our lives. And as Sean said, fo focus on what we have right now, because also I think too, I've told Sean this, I think at the end of the day, all that we have are our memories. So if you're not like totally engulfed in making the memories that you have, you know, the memories you can make in this present moment right now, and you're off thinking about, you know, what happened five years ago or yesterday or what's going to happen in 10 days. Like you're not present in that moment with the person or with yourself or whoever you're with. Uh, and you're not going to have as good of a memory as you could have or enjoy that moment to its fullest ability or, you know, feel it for what it is. Um, so really good, Sean. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and the episode is great. I know you mentioned Colton, one of the toughest kids I think I've ever met in my entire life. But like you said, the salt of the earth. And I had the opportunity to, to meet Melissa, I think twice 
um, and same way, just really great down to earth people. So we can't thank them enough. But as we mentioned in the episode, I think it's so cool. And one of the, the reasons me and Sean continue to do this and we love it so much is, you know, when you watch Dan behind the bench, you're watching a game uh, for the Nashville Predators. It's cool to be able to say kind of like, hey, I know that guy, but not like, uh, hey, I shook that guy's hand and, you know, we had a cup of coffee or whatever. But you really know that, you know, their story and what makes them who they are and how they got to where they are today. So it's very cool for us to be able to look at a situation like that and and look back on, you know, these episodes and these interviews and what a great guy. And he had, uh, you know, a lot more or dealt with a lot more than I would have ever expected. But again, like you can't judge a book by its cover. There's so many people that walk down the streets that you have no idea what they're dealing with on a regular day basis, whether it be good, bad or indifferent. Um, so that's why I continue to love these and to, to learn from other people's ex- experiences and try to apply them to our own lives. And you make a great point there. I think we've been really fortunate that our guests have opened up to a point, you know, we talk about some really hard things in their life. That's the goal. We want them to open up like that. And you really feel connected to someone, you know, 45 minutes of talking about your life struggles. You get to know someone a lot better than you know, 10 hours of talking about what they like to watch on TV. So I'm really, you know, I feel very fortunate that our guests have been so open. And, uh, you know, this is another interview where gets into some, some crazy things that, you know, as hockey players, you think we would have heard about, you know, he was involved on a team that had a bus crash where players on the team lost their, lost their lives. And, you know, that's obviously a very traumatic event. And, not something that you know people are generally comfortable opening up opening up about so um like you said i i love learning more about all of our guests and today's episode is no exception it's you know probably one of my favorite that we've done so far yeah i agree it was really cool and uh you know it's it's going to be fun to watch his career progress i don't know how much longer he wants to be in the game but i'm more of a nashville fan now after talking to him and I was already a pretty big Nashville fan because of, you know, Peck Renee and UC Saros. But uh, one thing I want to end with before kicking it back to Sean is Sean knows that I love like the cheesy inspirational quotes. Like I used to tweet him out when I was younger, but in this book I'm reading, I got a good quote for us. And I think now for the episodes, I'm going to start saying a quote at the end of every episode. So what I have for you today is self-discipline is the ability to do what you should, when you should, whether you feel like it or not. I like that idea. I was actually going to mention when you said that you have three new books that you're reading that you should definitely share, you know, some of the quotes or some of the knowledge you gain from that. So, um, yeah, definitely. I think every, every intro, you should hit us with some of that wisdom. And even if it doesn't pertain exactly to the episode, you know, eventually all those quotes will pile up. So, uh, love that out of you, Garrett. And, uh, let's kick it on over to Dan Lambert. Hey everyone. We want to let you in on a tremendous opportunity. Garrett and I have recently become sales reps for Verbero, an unrivaled hockey equipment and workout apparel company. Verbero utilizes a direct-to-consumer approach that removes the middleman and drives prices lower than any other leading brand in the industry without sacrificing quality. Just one example is the gloves, which are already being worn in the NHL. Verbero's fully customized gloves with team names, team logos, player names, and numbers are only $90 a pair before the discount for using our codes. A rival competitor CCM base pair without customization is about 200 bucks online. With over 25 former NHL players and over 20 of the top women's players within Verbero's powerful rep force, it's the only brand that is ran by people who understand the game better than anybody else. You can get an additional 5% off your entire order by using code GILES, that's all caps, G-I-L-E-S, in the checkout under discounts. Thinking about upgrading jerseys for your team? Verbero has amazing customization and can get you looking better than every other team in the league. To save even more on bulk orders, team orders, or even set up a team store, contact me on social media or my email, Giles at outlook.com. That's S-E-A-N-G-I-L-E-S at outlook.com. Today's guest has made it to the ultimate goal of the NHL as both a player and a coach. He was selected 106th overall in the 1989 NHL draft by the Quebec Nordiques and played in 29 games for the Nordiques. He played professionally for 19 years in North America as well as Europe. That career was highlighted by being named a four-time All-Star in the IHL 
and receiving the Governor's Trophy as the league's top defenseman in 1998. He was named captain of his professional teams in nine of his 19 seasons. Next, he moved on to coaching, and he is currently the assistant coach for the Nashville Predators in the NHL. Welcome to Adversity University, Dan Lambert. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Garrett, as well. Dan, how did growing up in Manitoba influence your childhood? How big was the sport of hockey there, and how did you get started playing? Well, ironically, I grew up in a town of about a 1,000 people, a small French community just south of Winnipeg, and I had two older brothers. They're four and five years older and and an older sister, but uh, basically growing up, that's that's all there was in our in our hometown was a hockey rink and and uh, I quickly and actually my dad used to build a, a small little pond right beside our house and uh, more for my brothers but it ended up that um, at two and three years old I was always on it I never wanted to came want never wanted to come off and and that kind of started my love for the game and and then uh, Obviously, the harsh winters in Manitoba, we didn't have artificial ice. We just, even in our rink, so uh, the seasons were short, but, um, you know, tried to be on the ice as, as much as I could. And and uh, obviously, trying to catch up or be as good as my brothers uh, forced me into, uh, you know, probably getting better than uh, than most at that age in my hometown. Yeah, and your your passion for the game continued to grow, and you you eventually had to move away from home when you were 15 to pursue your dream. So, what was it like moving away from from home to to do that? I think you mentioned you moved to Minnesota. Um, that's right, Garrett. I when I was 15, so being in a smaller town, you know, it, it was different. There wasn't uh, you know these AAA teams around, and and I couldn't move into Winnipeg because you actually had to move to go play in Winnipeg and, and they didn't allow that to, for you to just move, move over. Like it's different than it is now. So I didn't really have a place to play. And my, my Bantam coach, um, Jude Bullion had connections in Minnesota. Um, he had played college hockey in Bemidji. Anyway, we went to world played an exhibition game there against their, I guess it was their Bantam team. And, and he just told, um, kind of the, the head guy of, of the high school team, hey, why don't you come and watch our team? And I'd like for you to watch a player. And he goes, yeah, I'll come and watch your son. He goes, no, no, not my son. He goes, watch this little defenseman that we have. Anyway, make a long story short, they uh, they went through a few hoops and hurdles to to get me there. And and uh, as a, I guess it was sophomore in, in high school, I moved there as a 15-year-old. And and I, I will say, even though it was close to home, I mean, we were separated by a border and it wasn't always easy for my parents to come and visit or whatever. So I, I'm not going to lie to you. There was a lot of uh, lonely nights and a lot of uh, nights where I cried myself to sleep, but it was something that I wanted to do. And, uh, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to, that wasn't going to allow me to come back home and quit, for example. I mean, I, it's something I wanted to pursue. You ended up continuing that journey onto major junior. And we just saw in the most recent NHL draft last week that four of the top five picks were from the University of Michigan. Uh, college hockey is becoming more and more popular path for players to get to the NHL. So when you were a kid, uh, what was your path and your thought process like on college hockey versus major junior? And if you were to redo that today, would you change the decision you made? Well, I mean, first of all, you're right. Back when, when I played, you know, if you were Canadian, the college hockey route was not as uh, paved, let's say, as it is today. Um, but I, I did have real good grades in school and and the college route was something that I w- wanted to pursue. But then after a year of high school hockey and <clears throat> um, we only played, and I might be wrong here, it was a while ago, it was either 28 or 34 games or something. And, um, and the season was very short. And I just figured that if, if truly I wanted to be a hockey player, um, I, got a, I got a phone call from, um, well, eventually Swift Current, but originally was the Kamloops Blazers. Ken Hitchcock was, was the coach there. And uh, he called me. I said, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Hitchcock. I'm never going to play in the Western Hockey League. Then he, they traded my rights to Swift Current. Swift Current was a brand new team. And they actually went one step further. They came over, came to our house in St. Saint, in Saint Malo, Manitoba. And they were like, well, you're on the team. 
uh, all you have to do is sign on the dotted line and you're going to be on. I was like, what? I haven't even, you haven't even seen me play yet. So anyway, to make a long story short, they made it appealing. Um, and it was one of those things. My parents didn't have a whole lot of money. They had to pay for my room and board and, you know, for me to play in Minnesota and stuff. And I, I just, I was tired of them having to pay. And ultimately that became <clears throat> part of the reason. Plus the, the, the fact of playing 72 games a season um, was, uh, was pretty appealing for me. And, and because again, I wanted to be a hockey player. Yeah. Those crowds in major junior, are obviously very appealing too. It's, it's a really cool thing for, you know, 17, 18 year old to be able to play in a, a pro style. And I'm sure that that, you know, in-person meeting was very impactful compared to, you know, a phone call, even though, you know, Ken Hitchcock has made quite a career for himself since then. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, as, I mean, the fact that they basically handed me a, a position on the team and they said, you know, we don't know whether you're going to be the first or the seventh defenseman, that's going to be up to you. But the fact that they were basically saying, we don't care that you're five foot eight, we don't care that you're 140 pounds, we want you on our team. I was like, oh, okay. And and as far as the, the, the not, not, I'm not going to say the toughness, but the ruggedness of the game back then was very different. But just the fact that they were willing to just say, hey, you're on our team, it's up to you. For me, I, I, I was confident enough to believe that I could earn ice time over time. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's the way it went for me. And that was my experience. Um, would I do different today? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell. But certainly, um, I don't regret the decision because, uh, A, I met my wife in Swift Current. B, got to play with some unbelievable people. Um, got to win a Memorial Cup. I mean, there was a lot of great things that happened uh, choosing that route. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, you know, junior leagues in the United States weren't as, uh, you know, predominant or big as they, they are now back then. Uh, I think the USHL has really grown a whole lot and then obviously pushed a lot of those players to go the NCAA route because you get the extra years to develop and, and do whatever. And um, I think kids are starting to see the upside of the NCAA, not only the schooling, but, uh, you know, maybe a few less games. You get to spend more time in the weight room, grow physically, and kind of get up to speed with some of those professionals that are, you know, playing in the American League and the NHL. Um, but it's cool to kind of see how it's it's changed. Um, and I was fortunate enough to attend the Spokane Chiefs main camp when I was 15 or whatever it was, and it was, it was very eye-opening. Like, you get treated like absolute rock stars. Uh, you know, it's – it's very different. And I played in USHL and I had a great time, but the Western hockey league is like, it's legit professional hockey is what it feels like the way that you get treated and everything's handled. Oh, I, I didn't realize you, uh, you went to Spokane. I, I coached there by the way. Okay. And, and it's kind of ironic. And, you know, I, I coached in Kelowna. Then I went to Spokane after I was with the Buffalo organization and they did a really, really good job in, 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 uh, in their camps uh, just to promote the league. And, and I, I thought it was a, a great organization, a great um, opportunity for whoever. And again, it's not, I, I would never say that this is the right way and that's the only way. Um, I do believe there are two great options. And, uh, and certainly I'm biased towards Spokane because I, I spent my, you know, the last few years of coaching junior there and, and I loved my time there. Yeah, it was a beautiful place to play. Uh, but going back to your career, Sean mentioned you were fortunate enough to hear your name selected in the NHL draft. And looking back on the draft, what did that day mean to you? And how did you use it as motivation to move on to the next level? So everything was different back then. You, did, you didn't have the uh, social media. It wasn't televised. There was nothing, you know, nothing like that. And, and to be honest with you, this is kind of funny. So this was my my second year of being um, eligible to, to get drafted because back then at 17, you had to go in the first three rounds. If you didn't go in the first three rounds, you had to wait till the next year. So I don't know if you guys were aware of that's the way it was, but it was like that for a small window. Anyway, I didn't get drafted that first year. And then <clears throat> the second year um, we had just won the Memorial cup. I had a really good tournament, um, won the MVP. And still being a smaller, smaller defenseman, it was very difficult. And, and even to this, like, I, I just had no idea, even if I was going to get drafted. And there was 12 rounds back then, 21 teams. Anyway, to make a long story short, that morning I got up, went and played in a slow pitch tournament. 
And uh, I was at my billets in Swift Current and I came home and they're like, oh, there's a message for you. Um, some Somebody called, they're like, not sure who it is anyway. So I called back and sure enough, it was, they let me know that I had been drafted to the Quebec Nordique. So it was, you know, like it wasn't a big, it was a huge thing. Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't televised. So you just went about your business. And when you got the call, you're like, oh, great. Now, I, now, now, but realistically, nothing changes. Like, because you get drafted, you're not a different person. You're not, you know, like now you got to get to work because now you got to get ready for that first opportunity, the first camp or whatever it may be. So, yeah, very different. Yeah, a quick tangent on your uh, your first point about having to be drafted in the first three rounds. I watched a video today about Pavel Bure, and the league information was that he'd only played nine pro games, and you had to play 10 or else uh, you had to be drafted in the first three rounds, sort of similar to being 17. Right. And somehow Vancouver had information that he had actually played 11, so they tried to draft him in like the sixth round, and there was this big uproar that they were like cheating <laughs> And 12 months later, they were awarded Pavel Bure. So funny that you bring up that three-round rule because I learned that literally today. Um, That's funny, yeah. But it is very true that, you know, in junior hockey, when you get committed to college, everyone who's not committed is like, oh, man, like that's the, that's the switch. Like it's flipped. Like now there's no pressure and he's just going to be this great player. And you're right. It's It's nice to get that accolade. It's nice to you know, have your hard work recognized, but at the end of the day, the work has just begun. And I think that's something that some people take for granted is when you get those commitments or you sign a new contract, people are like, nice, you did it. Well, not really. All you did was earn the opportunity to continue getting better and continue growing. So it's a good mindset that you had there. And um, I'm sure it helped you on your next step because as a rookie, you played in three different leagues and, you know, it's never easy moving around. So was all this movement of shock. And how did you handle that adversity of never really being settled in one spot? Well, um, that was, to be honest with you, as a young player. So I had gone through junior, had a pretty good junior career and, and things were going well. So now I'm 20 years old and I go to my, I think it was the, my second NHL camp. And um, and now I'm, I'm, you know, I can play in the American League or wherever so I go through camp felt like I had a pretty good camp next thing you know I go through my American League uh, camp and thinking well I'm going to be on the team and that was the wrong assumption uh, maybe and you know I was naive I, I I I just maybe I didn't play as well and as hard as I should have I'm not sure but at the end of camp the the assistant GM calls me in and he's he has a meeting he's like listen we know we signed you um, but at this point, we don't really care what you do. You can go back to junior if you want. You could go play in the IHL, uh, totally up to you. But uh, right now we have zero plans for you and, uh, and do what you want. Let me know in, in a few hours. And I was, I was like, what? Like I'm 20 years old and my, my career is over before I started. Um, so I called my junior coach and, and, you know, he, he let me know. He's like, you know what, like you've, you've done everything. Why don't you go to the IHL, try it out. And if you don't like it, you can always come back. I mean, it's not like we won't take you. So I went to the IHL, which was probably the best decision that I ever could have made. Our coach was uh, Al Sims, who had been Bobby Orr's partner. So he, he was very, um, I'm not comparing myself to Bobby Orr, but I was an offensive defenseman. So he, right away, right from the get-go, was a big fan. And he gave me every opportunity. And right from there, um, my young pro career took strides that, you know, I don't know if anybody or everybody would have given me the opportunity. Being, again, I was five foot eight. I was playing in a real tough league. The IHL back then was was a, a lot of fighting, a lot of, and, you know, and I had played the Western League, so I was used to that. But um, it was great to get the opportunity and then, you know, then the season went on. I got called the AHL. Um, then the last game of the year, um, which is kind of back to my story of how this man had told me, and I, I don't want to name names, but he told me, we don't care about you. We have no, he actually picked me up at the airport and for me to play my first NHL game. And when he picked me up, he's like, well, Dan, we were wrong about you really love the way that you progressed. And so it was really, you know, it's pretty cool when somebody is able to say those words to you 
when, you know, for me, I was just, I was 20 years old. I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? You don't care what I do? Like what are you talking about? Yeah. That's actually sort of a motto that uh, I picked up from one of my veterans in uh, junior was prove people wrong. So there's, there's always going to be, you know, naysayers and doubters. And, you know, for you, size was a bit of a factor because back then, you know, the, the clutch and grab era, as they call it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just put your stick in a guy's waist and water ski back to the net. Not as easy for a 140 pound guy as, you know, big Adam foot or someone like that. So it's pretty <laughs> impressive. You were able to overcome all that. I did have a quick question. Was the IHL uh, comparable to what the ECHL is now? So, well, so, so the, back then there was two, two major minor leagues. So the American league had quite a few um, teams that were affiliated their first affiliate. There was probably, I don't know how many, I'm going to say six, seven teams in the IHL that were affiliated directly like Chicago, for example, their team was in Indianapolis. So there were teams that were, that was their first affiliate. So um, back then they still had an ECHL. So, so like, for example, Quebec sent their, their, prospects to the American League they sprinkled some people in the IHL and then they also sprinkled some people in the East Coast League so it was a it was different um, and then the IHL became for sure as good as the the uh, AHL in in my opinion you know later on but um, for for back those seasons the I was our teams what's that back when you kept being named an all-star <laughs> yeah well it, it was yeah it was a different league and at one point the the ihl wanted to compete with the nhl you know that was their goal they almost wanted to become like a wha which obviously never panned out but um i think that was their their goal at one point i picture my dad right now with just these absolute massive eyes just foaming at the mouth because he refed professional hockey for 26 years in the ihl um, you know, back in th- with the Salt Lake Golden Eagles. And I hear I hear you telling stories of who your coach was or, you know, who you played with. And my dad, I just picture him saying, oh, I know who that guy was. Or like, <laughs> he's got so many stories. It's absolutely insane, but he's going to love hearing your story and, uh, you know, your your years of playing in the IHL and stuff like that. Well, there's a chance he might have reffed me and there's probably a chance he, he called me for spearing or doing <laughs> something uh, as a young guy had to do back then or a smaller player, um, kill or be killed. You may have had a few choice words for him too, huh? <laughs> yeah, I might have. Not proud of those days, but it's part of it. Yeah. Uh, so the last ten years of your career, you were you spent playing uh, in the Dell, which is the top league in Germany. So what was that transition like leaving North America, and then what challenges came uh, with becoming the captain of a team in another hemisphere of the world? So when when uh, I was twenty nine years old, we had two daughters and the IHL, like we, I was playing in Long Beach, California. And, you know, we, we went on a lot of long road trips and it was getting hard. And, and, you know, the league is, is hard. It was still pretty tough league. And my body was starting to not completely break down, but a little bit. And uh, we just made a family decision. We had friends that were playing in Germany and they're like, you should come Lambo would be great. Like you'd be awesome here. You don't get hit. You just skate. You got lots of room, whatever. So we, we decided to make the move and we thought we'll go for one year. And honestly, the quality of life there compared to here, where here in, in the eye where, you know, we're gone for two weeks at a time. I mean, you were home every night pretty much, except for maybe four times throughout the year where you'd stay overnight because in Germany, everything's pretty close. You could take the train to games. Like it was really cool. And uh, it was such a good experience, such a good family experience. We had tons of North Americans on our team. So it almost became, we had more North Americans in my first year in Cologne than we did on, on our teams in Long Beach. Like everything was in English. Our coaches were in. So it was it was really cool. It was a great experience. It took us time. Like we, we didn't love it at first. We went from Long Beach where it's, sunny every day we lived on the ocean i mean it was a pretty good situation to cologne germany where it rains every day you don't see the sun for months you know it was just so that was hard for my but the quality of life was was really good and so much so that we decided you know what why don't we have another kid we have so much time at home you know so um it was it was a great experience for sure it was an adjustment the first few months 
But after that, like when it went into a second, third, fourth, and then it came to a point where I was like, gosh, they want to, they want me to keep playing. I may as well just keep playing. And so my last three years, I went by myself because it was getting to be harder for our kids. Our kids went to all German school, which was the best decision we made. They learned the language, just submerged them right into it. And yeah, it was a struggle at first, but after three months, they spoke the language. It was really good. It was a great experience. Uh, you have three beautiful daughters now. I know you mentioned two before uh, and a lovely wife. How did you handle raising them while also playing professionally? I know you dove into it a little bit, but was it hard for them to you know, live on another side of the world, whereas most kids are, you know, growing up in the American culture, were you trying to teach them some of the things from back home as well? Or were you just fully immersed into that German culture? Well, I, I feel like they got best of both worlds because, you know, we, we did go there for the hockey season. As soon as the hockey season ended, we would come back home and, and they would go into English school. And they, so they, they certainly did um, both of that. Um, and, and I'm not going to, pretend to take any credit. Uh, it all goes to my wife. She, um, she's the one that, you know, would, would uh, come later on. So she's the one that would travel with three kids on the plane, flying across the world, um, never asked for help, you know, and, and just did it on her own. And she would come home early as well, usually before playoffs, just because the weather was getting nice at home, get them uh, a little bit more time in the English environment of school and so on. So, there were a lot of, uh, but ultimately she's the one that uh, did an unbelievable job. And um, I was fun dad. That's what I did. I'd come home and I'd play with them and hang out. And she was the one that would do the disciplining, the all uh, of the all of the grunt work. That's funny. And I think that a lot of credit always goes to the, you know, the girlfriends, fiancés and wives that, especially in this profession, stand by because it's uh, a pretty crazy lifestyle or it can be for sure. Um but how did you turn such a long playing career uh, or how did that help prepare you for the coaching world? And even though you spent your whole life in the game, what adjustments did you need to make to succeed? Um, I, so, sorry, I, I probably didn't answer your whole question. So I, I became captain over there. I'd been captain in North America as well. And I think leading was always one of the things that I, I did. I, I don't know if it came naturally or if it came from, me watching captains of teams growing up or whatever it may be. <clears throat> the one, the one thing um, I will say about that is no matter what language, no matter who you are, if, if you're all about team and you're all about uh, winning and playing the right way and doing the right things, usually, you know, people automatically just think of you as a leader. Um, when I played, I always, you know, as players, we always question the coaches. I mean, that's, that's just what we do. We sit around, have beers at night and we sit there and, oh, well, if I was the coach, I would do this or I wouldn't do that. Or, I mean, you know, you guys play, it's, it's always the same. We always know better than the coaches. And I, I always would try to put myself in the coach's shoes. And let's say if a coach uh, did play a guy, didn't play a guy, you know, what was the reasoning? What, what would, why was he doing, making these decisions? And I always tried to put, and sometimes I would sit and talk to the coach and ask questions, not, not necessarily trying to be um, a know-it-all, or I just wanted to try to understand where they were coming from. And I think that probably helped me as a player, because I played till I was 39. I had, I had times where uh, coaches or organizations stopped believing in me. Um, so when that happened, those were probably really good learning years for me because now I've, maybe I was, I became the guy that didn't play as much. I became that guy where I had never seen that or felt it and knew what it was like. So um, those were really, really hard years, but yet they were learning years. And, you know, to this day, now I understand when he's, when there's a player that only plays six or eight minutes, um, usually you do it when you're early in your career. I had to do it you know, when I was 34, 35, and then had to move on from that team, went to a different team. The other team believed in me. And then I went right back to until I couldn't play anymore. But it is just funny how um, I think putting myself in the coach's shoes helped me. And it also made me realize like, this game is what I love. It's what I know. It's what I want to do. Um, why wouldn't I stay in it? It's almost like I had a master's degree in the game of hockey. 
Yeah. And you mentioned, you don't know if you were, you know, kind of a natural born leader, if you learn those skills, but if you look back or think about your time as a coach, what leadership style do you think that you have? Like, as far as, you know, leading by example, or, you know, through word of mouth or talking verbally, what would you say that your leadership style is? Well, I, I think like throughout my career, I think it had to change when I was in, for example, when I played junior hockey in Swift Current, I was the the hard worker, the guy that just competed really hard because I had to fight for everything that I got and I wanted to earn it and so on and so forth. And, and that went on and, and lasted a long time. When I, when I became, you know, when I was 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, I, I had to be more of a smart leader and try to play the right way. The right way in Germany was different than the right way in North America where you had to, you know, crash and bang and fight and, um, there it was more, I just had to make the right decisions, the right reads guys respected me because I was old. I wasn't as fast anymore. I didn't rush the puck like I used to, you know, so I really had to change my style. I, I, you know, played a game that was more uh, very offensive to a guy, almost like Brad Marsh. I became a shot blocker. I became, you know, so it was just funny how I, I, I had to adjust to keep playing, um, and yet keep the respect. And, and so things certainly changed for me. I think that that's true in any career, though, because, you know, the longer you stay somewhere, the more hats you have to wear. And, you know, sometimes you become better fit for one role than you initially anticipated. So I think that that experience probably has helped you as a coach, because now you're not only used to, you know, that power play superstar style and knowing how to handle that player. You also have been the player who doesn't play as many minutes and has to block shots to stay in the lineup. So I think it gave you a very diverse look at an individual player's mindset and it's probably something that's helped you moving forward yeah I would think so for sure I mean you know even though at that point in time I you know I didn't know where my coaching career was going to take me I didn't know you know which direction I was going to go into the game but you're right I, I think understanding what it's like to stand in front of a shot that's coming at you at 95 or 100 miles an hour and just you know taking it and you know, making sure that it doesn't get to the goalie or whatever. I, it, it's an art, but it's also, it's not everybody that's willing to do it, but sometimes you got to sacrifice. And I, I think those are certainly uh, parts and areas that, that you, yeah, you have to, you have to do it just, like you said, stay in the lineup. I just want to clarify, because everyone says that goalies are crazy, but we do all that with like a lot of gear on. You do that with, you know, little shim pad <laughs> like it. And we're the crazy ones. I think that we need to reevaluate like the whole crazy thing of goalies. Yeah, but we don't have to do it as often as, as you guys. For us, if it does get by us, it's like, oh, the goalie's there. That's OK. We're good. <laughs> all right. That's, that's fair. <laughs> I think you stole that from uh, Rizgalam there, AG. <laughs> um so you were around the game, obviously, you know, just under 20 years of pro, you saw a lot, but there was one very unique situation uh, when you were early in your coaching career. As an assistant coach of major junior hockey, you had a player on your team who ended up dating your daughter. Uh, they're now engaged and you and Colton have a fantastic relationship, but how did that story play out and how did uh, his relationship with your daughter affect the dynamic between a player and a coach? Um, so, well, first of all, I, I knew Colton, you know, he's from Swift Current. I knew a lot of people in Swift Current, even though we weren't living there. Um, I knew his, I knew his dad, you know, like there was a lot of history there and, and Colton was a, a good young talent. He was a, I think a second round pick to Kelowna. Anyway, to make a long story short, him and Melissa knew a lot of mutual friends and it was just kind of a natural thing that they started hanging out a little bit in Kelowna. Um, <clears throat> Ryan Husko was the head coach. I was the assistant coach and I was, I was the good guy. Right. So everybody was good or everything was fine. And, and they started dating. And it's funny when I got into junior hockey, I had one rule and it was like, you're not dating. You're not going to date one of our players. Like I told that, to, you know, obviously Melissa, uh, Julie, our middle guy, you know, and, and, it was almost like as soon as I told Melissa that it was like, ah, that's a challenge. I will do that. You know, <laughs> that's how she works. And she's got a little bit of her dad in her, I guess. And honestly, I was like, are you kidding me? Like of all the things, but then um, again, I, my wife kind of goes, well, she goes, she's going to date somebody. And chances are you will never know this young man. Like, you know, Colton. So why not him? Is he a good kid? you know, you know, like, you know what he does, you know? So 
and, and it made sense to me. And <clears throat> I, it was probably harder on Colton and Melissa than it was on me, to be honest with you, because I just had to, the head coach was just like, oh my gosh, how do you know? And I'm like, it's fine. It's not that bad. Like, it's fine. You know, like we still have a good relationship. Everything's fine. It, when Colton was 20 is when um, I became the head coach. And that's when it was a little harder. So I don't know if Colton told you this, but when I was the head coach, you know, I would literally do your thing. And as a head coach, you know, you're, and, a, and an assistant too, but as a head, it was my first head coaching job. Uh, the game never left. It was always in, in my head and it was always in my mind. And I literally would come around the corner and I would see Colton's car. And I was like, oh, I still have to wear my coach's hat when I go home. Yeah. You know, and that became a bit of an issue for me. So I, I finally explained to my wife how I felt. And she's like, well, why don't you just sit them down and tell them like th that, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't come around as much. And if you're not around, it's fine. And, and, and you know what? And both Melissa and Colton handled it really well. Now, not too many um, future. Now, now we can say this future father-in-laws get to get an opportunity to to trade their future son-in-law but um we were in a situation where we had a really good team uh, we had an opportunity to possibly trade for leon dreisaitl and josh morrissey two pretty good players um and one of the guys that they wanted and, and we had to let go was was colton and and uh, it was hard it was a hard day i'm not gonna lie to you like um first of all as soon as we did it you know coaches sometimes are involved sometimes they're not but it was a decision that our, our, our team made and um, it was a hard call to Melissa. It was a hard call to Colton or a hard chat with Colton. Uh, I'd be lying if I said there weren't tears because there were, because we had a great relationship. And in saying that, I mean, it, it worked out really probably better for Colton. He was able to go to Prince Albert and play the rest of his junior career without having the uh, over his head that he's dating the coach's daughter. And, uh, you know, for us, we ended up, going all the way to the Memorial Cup. And so it, it you know, it, it worked out for both. Yeah, I'm sure that was really hard for Melissa and, you know, getting to meet her this year. I know she is very mature, but, you know, it's like you said, a rare situation where, you know, future father-in-law has to, you know, basically break his daughter's heart and trade her boyfriend to another <laughs> city. So um, just a funny story that I definitely wanted to to get on the podcast because when I heard that from them, I mean, they'd been together nine years and they said that was how it all started. I was like, that's a crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, and you know what? The fact that they stuck through it, you know, like they did a long distance for a while. And that's never, as you guys know, it's not easy. Uh, often things don't work out. But uh, so far, so good. They've stuck it out and, uh, and they're doing well. Yeah. So in all of your years of playing or coaching hockey, which was the toughest for you and why? <laughs> well, it's funny. Um I had an idea you're going to ask me this question. So I had, you know, a little bit of time to, to answer it. And, and probably the, the toughest, uh, one of the toughest times, I shouldn't say the toughest because you go through a lot of different emotions as a player, as a coach, whatever, but certainly as a player, um, when I was 16 years old, I was playing for the Swift Current Broncos in 1986 and we had a bus accident and, uh, four players died. Um, so, I was actually, I wasn't, I was playing for like a team, team Western at the time was under 17 for team Canada. We were playing against a Russian team just over the Christmas break. And um, obviously the, the accident happened and, and, you know, and it's, it's not on social media, everything's very different. So it was in between periods. I found out our team had, had an accident, found out four guys had, had died, didn't know who. Uh, didn't know what happened basically was just told that and then it was like go out there and play the third period so it was very hard it was very di difficult um, and then I think the most difficult time to be honest with you was when I came back to Swift Current I felt like I had let the team down for not being there during this accident and right after you know I felt like they had a bond that was different than I almost felt like a little bit on the outside. I almost felt like I should have been there. Um, you know, why, you know, and I felt like I wasn't part of the team uh, as much. And, and then, you know, 
one night we're sitting around talking about the guys that had left us and and uh, everything that had gone on and and I, I expressed my my feelings and and the guys are like are you kidding me like you should be happy that you weren't there because it wasn't easy but in saying that like we're really happy that you weren't we're really happy that you're part of this team don't you dare ask for a trade and and uh, you know i had i had two great roommates in uh, joe sackick and sheldon kennedy who both have gone on to do great things both in the game and, and away from the game and uh yeah i mean it was just it was really really difficult it was a hard time yet um you know we've all we've all moved on and and um you know, we think about the four guys that, that died and, and it was a sad, sad situation. But, um, you know, when you think about the amount of travel that goes on in, in junior hockey, not just in the Canadian Hockey League, but you talk about the USHL and all that. Um, it's amazing that it doesn't happen more often because of sometimes the, the conditions that you travel in. So that was a hard, hard moment and time in our lives. Um, and it's something that, you know, it never goes away. Yeah, I remember, you know, obviously I had no idea about that situation, but when Humboldt happened, I remember we were on the bus like the next day or maybe even that day we found out. And I remember sitting there thinking like no one on these buses wears seatbelts. I'm looking around and guys are taking naps everywhere. And I remember I've never like for me, like the bus when you're on there with like the boys, you feel so secure. I have never felt like so scared to be on a bus in my entire life because I thought exactly about that. Like, how does this not happen more often? Because we drive through snowstorms, rainstorms through the middle of the night. Like sometimes the bus drivers are driving for, you know, whatever it is, 10 plus hours um, and such a tragic event. And hopefully that, you know, the people that are in charge of, you know, running the buses or planning those trips can look at events like that. Uh, to hopefully better prepare ourselves to prevent accidents like that from happening again. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, for, for us, it was, we hit black ice and, and, you know, like it's just something that happened and, and you're not always in, in control of situations when you're behind the wheel and certainly not when you're, you're carrying a, you know, you're behind the wheel of a, of a bus carrying, you know, 28 people or whatever it may be on a team um you know obviously the the humble situation certainly um you know it brought back a lot of memories and just seeing and hearing of what um those those families went through um you know it just brought a lot of brought back a lot of memories and and uh certainly felt felt for those people because uh Hockey is a small community and, and it touched a lot of people. And uh, I, I, you know, it's, I'm happy to see that Humboldt has gone on and, but, and a lot of those players have, have found a way to move on from their tragedy. Yeah. We've been fortunate enough to have two of the survivors of the Humboldt bus crashes on this podcast. And what you did is actually, you know, exactly with the motto of mental health, uh, you know, just starting that conversation because like you said, it, it was affecting you as you almost felt guilty for not being there and you had a lot of worries going on. But then when you did express them, you realized, you know, the team loves you just as much as everyone else. And, you know, just getting those emotions out there, you almost created a problem that, you know, people didn't actually feel that way. And just starting those conversations can help so much. Um, I, I think that it's just a great example of, you know, why that phrase let's start the conversation is important because okay oh you're good okay he's back yeah we're good all right yeah sorry about that i don't know what happened um it, it just froze i don't know if it was you froze we i froze something happened but i think it was good. i had to reconnect but um i'll just start that over um we were fortunate enough to have two of the humble bronco survivors on this podcast and they've gone on to start doing some public speaking and talking about it and I think what you did is so important. That motto now for mental health is let's start the conversation. And you felt guilty for not being there at that crash and kind of created some worries in your own headspace about, you know, not feeling like part of the group and them having that different bond. And just by expressing that and having that conversation, it sounds like your teammates were able to put those feelings at, at ease and, you know, help you get back on that road to recovery. So, you know, just, expressing your feelings, you know, as 
you know, soft, I guess is the word that some hockey players may feel about that, but it can really help. And I think it's really important for mental health that if you are feeling that way, like not part of your team, your teammates are supposed to be your family. You definitely have to express that if not to the whole group, at least, you know, to the people you trust, like your roommates and, you know, get back on track that way. No, you're right. I mean, you know, I mean, back then you certainly didn't have the people that you go talk to, you know, your sports psychologist or, or psychiatrist, whatever, like it just wasn't really a thing. And, and um, I think I found at an early age, I, I don't know if it's from being French or whatever. I, I've never been afraid to express my feelings. Um, and ironically, I think it's probably helped me um, throughout my coaching career as well, just to be open and honest with people, whether it's hard talks or easier talks or talks about emotions or whatever, I think it's really important. And, you know, now where the game has gone with, you know, most teams have sports psychologists and, and how to help young players, you know, and I think it's a lot of it is social media, the pressures that are out there. Um, I mean, you know, we didn't have, to, we didn't have to deal with that. You know, if, if I was, if I had a bad game one night, I was minus three and, you know, God knows it happened. Um, I didn't have to worry about hearing it from 300 or, or 3,000 or 300,000 people just writing stuff that, that have no accountability to anything. Uh, and that's the world we live in now. And, and certainly I feel, I feel for the athletes because um, I know they get paid very well, especially at the NHL level or, or you know, at the top level. But uh, realistically, it does certainly um, affect sometimes their, their mental space. Yeah, it's actually crazy to me how uh, how much power those people behind the screens typing away have on, you know, our lives and affect us. Um, you know, they say try not to listen to it, but it's hard at the end of the day. And then when you read something, I feel like it's kind of consciously in the back of your head. Um, but you've mentioned some some pretty elite players, Joe Sackick. Um, obviously, you've been in Nashville. You've been around Roman Yossi, Pecorine. So uh, when you've been around some of this elite talent every step of the way, what do you think separates guys like those, not only as players, but as people? Well, um, you know, ironically, you know, both, uh, well, the three guys you mentioned, uh, Joe, Roman, and Pecorine, um, I think first and foremost, they're unbelievable people. And they're they're selfless as far as, you know, teammates and, and, and help people out and, and do whatever they need to do. But I think the biggest thing for them is every single one of them, um, their work ethic is incredible. And when, you know, and, and I think a lot of that, like people don't see that. I mean, the work that they do behind the scenes and, and how every single day they're your hardest working guy at every practice, regardless of whether they played 27 minutes the night before or um, 22 minutes like they're just always going to be your hardest worker the next day of practice and that's true of all of those three guys that you mentioned the other thing I think ultimately their goal isn't to make the most money their goal isn't to to be the most popular their goal is is simply to be the best version of themselves every day and when that's your goal um, it, it doesn't become about anything else or any noise that's around you. It's just like, was I my best? And, you know, it, it's kind of funny. And, and I'm like, I know as my, the biggest, I think, lesson my dad ever gave me was no matter what you do, you give the, as, give the best you have. And that's all you can do. And after games, it, if I, you know, when I was younger, if I scored five goals, if I scored two goals, if I scored no goals, he had one question. Did you work as hard as you could? And like, yes, or, you know, and it's funny to this day, there was one game when he said that wasn't your best, was it? And, and that one time he told me, I was like, you know what, dad, you're, you're right. That wasn't my best. Now your best isn't always going to be perfect where you score every night or you make every save or, you know, but your best is the effort. And that's something you can control all the time. And, and, uh, the one thing about those three guys that you talked about, I'll tell you, they just wanted to be the best that they could be every single day. And uh, that's very important. Absolutely. And 
This next one's a bit of a fanboy question for a Colorado Avalanche fan. Uh, you mentioned your roommates with Joe Sackick and Junior. You guys have been very close ever since. What was his presence like in Junior before you know anybody knew he would become an NHL Hall of Famer? And you know later on his, in his career, did you know that he would want to stay in the game and become a GM? Well, that part I certainly didn't know. Um, I obviously know that he he's got love and passion for the game, but um, the one thing about Joe is is you know like like every player, I'm pretty sure that he's had uh, struggles along the way. As far as like, there was probably something that happened to him in his career that made him realize like, okay, wait a second. I need to be the hardest player or hardest working guy, but it's, it's kind of funny because I think having watched Joe and, and been around him a little bit and a, his work ethic was unmatched at that time. Like he did training that, you know, now everybody does training, but back then I think he was for sure the hardest worker off the ice. And I do believe that that happened at one point when somebody challenged him and said, you don't skate well enough to play in the NHL. And and in his mind, it was like, well, I'm, that's never going to be an issue. I, I, skating will never be the reason I don't play in the NHL. And he became one of the elite skaters, and that was all through hard work. And, you know, the other thing about Joe is I don't remember him having a bad game in junior hockey. Now, you could think, well, as if. But I'm telling you, his bad game was this. His great games were this, but a bad game, like where he was awful, didn't exist. And that's probably true in his, in his NHL career as well. Now I'm sure when he was younger, there was, you know, there were times where, where he was, uh, he had off nights and everybody has off nights, but I mean, like, you know, where truly he stunk the joint out. I don't think it ever happened. He was, in my opinion, Mr. Consistency when it came to the game of hockey, how he approached every game, how well, how hard he played, and how at the end of the day, he, he wanted to win. And, uh, and I think that's why Joe is Joe. And, and uh, you know, and, and now he's become a GM and he's become an unbelievable GM. Right now, there's a lot of excitement as the expansion draft, amateur draft, and free agency has concluded or just begun. So as a coaching staff, are you guys just as excited uh, as the fans are, or is there more pressure for acquiring the right pieces, uh, or, or can it be a, a bit overwhelming? Um, I mean, you know, coaches at the end of the day, you know, you, you've got to coach the guys that you get, and you don't always have say in, in who you get and whatever. Like, so for us, when the pieces start falling in place, so you start signing guys, you get, um, it does get exciting because now you're like, okay, now this is what the puzzle is going to look like. How can we make it fit? How do we make sure the guys play their best? How do we put them in situations where they're going to be at their best? So that's, this is kind of uh, certainly a fun time. I'm, I'm uh, part of my job is the power play. So already I'm starting to think, okay, well, we have these few players, where can we fit? You know, we lost a few players. Uh, how is that going to affect? So, um, you know, the way we look at it is we lost a few players or a, a few pieces to the puzzle, but that means there's an opportunity out there for maybe a younger player or somebody that's coming in. So it is exciting. Everything's exciting because right now everybody believes that their team can make the playoffs. And as coaches, that's, that's what you're, you're working towards. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll be rooting for Nashville as, you know, it's been great to get to know you, hear your story. We can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and, you know, a heck of a career as a player and a coach. So thank you again so much for your time. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Garrett. Really appreciate you guys having me uh, on here and uh, hope to see you down the road here. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. 
If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.